Our sermon today has two texts, Romans chapter 9 and verse 16. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. And Revelation 22 and verse 17, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This is a sermon preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon on Sunday morning, the 30th of March, 1862, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle at Newington. The title is God's Will and Man's Will, and you're listening to a podcast from the heart of Spurgeon, attempting to read through the sermons preached by this eminent servant of the living God, gifted to make Jesus Christ known, And each week we take a featured sermon as we work our way day by day through the sermons of Spurgeon, and we've come to this one this morning. If you want to uh, follow along with us, you're welcome to do that. Uh, This week we're reading from sermons 437 to 443, and our featured sermon is this one, 442. And you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, uh, where you'll be able to get all the information that you need to follow day by day with occasional uh, tweets, uh, snippets from those sermons. Or you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts and sign up for a weekly newsletter. The sermon we're looking at today is a reflection of where Spurgeon sits in the landscape, the theological landscape of his own time and place. He was shot at from two sides. The Arminians typically objected to the vigour of his views on the sovereignty of God in salvation. And also in London, there were abundant hyper-Calvinists who typically objected to the free offer of the gospel in his ministry. Now, those won't have been the only bones of contention, but they'd be uh, examples or preeminent points of contact at which Spurgeon would have been assaulted. And what he does in this sermon is both pastorally and practically And then in a way that is essentially also polemical is that Spurgeon brings the word of God to bear upon this question, God's will and man's will. And he wants us to understand that this question, this difficult question of the will has been a a point of contention, a division in the Christian church for many ages. Now, his approach to this is interesting. He need not say, he says, of that conflict, that it's done much mischief to the Christian church. Undoubtedly, it has. But I will rather say that it's been fraught with incalculable usefulness, for it has thrust forward before the minds of Christians precious truths which, but for this, might have been kept in the shade. I believe that the two great doctrines of human responsibility and divine sovereignty have both been brought out the more prominently in the Christian church by the fact that there is a class of strong-minded men, strong-minded hard-headed men, who magnify sovereignty at the expense of responsibility, and another earnest and useful class who uphold and maintain human responsibility, oftentimes at the expense of divine sovereignty." I believe, says Spurgeon, there is a needs be for this in the finite character of the human mind, while the natural lethargy of the church requires a kind of healthy irritation to arouse her powers and stimulate her exertions. You see, as we've watched before in Spurgeon's life and ministry, Spurgeon is persuaded that while not every gospel doctrine is central and essential, yet none are insignificant. 
And so while we might mourn over some of the contentions that there are in the church of Jesus Christ, it is important that we actually pursue truth. And one of the effects of these kinds of discussions, debates, and even arguments is that it focuses our mind and stirs our powers to ask, what has God actually said? Now, says Spurgeon, success then to sectarianism. Let it live and flourish. When that is done with, farewell to the power of godliness. When we cease, each of us, to maintain our own views of truth and to maintain those views firmly and strenuously, then truth shall fly out of the land and error alone shall reign. So, by all means, says Spurgeon, hold fast to the things which are most surely believed in the church of Jesus Christ. Do it with love, do it with compassion, with patience, with tenderness, but don't forget as he accuses some of doing, that some brothers have altogether forgotten one order of truths and in the next place they've gone too far with others. He says, doubtless with a smile upon his face, I've heard of one man who said he'd read the Bible through 34 times on his knees and could not see a word about election in it. I think it very likely that he could not. Kneeling is a very uncomfortable posture for reading, and possibly the superstition which would make the poor man perform this penance would disqualify him for using his reason. Moreover, to get through the book 34 times, he probably read in such a hurry that he did not know what he was reading and might as well have been dreaming over Robinson Crusoe as the Bible. So, says Spurgeon, yeah, let's, let's be careful. Let's make sure that we are devoted to the truth in the right spirit and to the right end. And what he wants to do is to see how these two truths hold together. Now again, Spurgeon will reiterate throughout his ministry that uh, there's no unhealthy tension between these things, but rather a proper union. Yes, we might not always be able to understand quite how they hold together, but they are not opposed one to another. And so he's going to take his two texts and he's going to look first at the work of salvation resting upon the will of God and not upon the will of man. And secondly, that the will of man has its proper position in the work of salvation and is not to be ignored. Now, before we dive into those two headings, notice that they are not merely polar opposites and that Spurgeon does not use the same language, the same phrasing for each of them. The work of salvation rests upon the will of God and not upon the will of man. There is primacy there. But also the will of man has its proper position in the work of salvation and is not to be ignored. There's recognition and subordination in that statement. So Spurgeon is not then saying that these are equal in their relation one to another. What he's saying is that they do have a relationship one to another and it's vitally important that we understand that relationship. And so salvation hinges upon the will of God and not upon the will of man. The whole scheme of salvation we aver from the first to the last hinges and turns and is dependent upon the absolute will of God and not upon the will of the creature. Now, how will we demonstrate that, asks the preacher. He says two or three ways. By the time he's finished, he's got five. So I'm not sure what notes he's got in front of him, whether there are three headings and a couple of others bubble up in the act of preaching, or whether or not he's uh, uh, just uh, underestimating where he's going. 
But his first point is that analogy furnishes us with a rather strong argument, this issue of likeness between the works of God. His illustration is that if a painter paints three pictures, there's a certain identity of style about all three, which leads you to know that they are from the same hand. If an author writes three books, you'll recognise the same quality of writing in the whole. So let's look at other works of God and see what is true of them that is usually then going to be true with regard to the greater work of grace. And the two other categories of work are those of creation and providence. With regard to creation, who ordained, established, and brought all things into being? It was God. He created as it pleased him. He made creatures as he chose. The potter exercised power over his clay to make his vessels as he willed and to make them for what purposes he pleased. Do you think then, says Spurgeon, that God has abdicated the throne of grace, that he reigns in creation and not in salvation? And then the works of providence. I suppose, he says, sadly he might not be able to do that today, that there will be no dispute among us that in providential matters God orders all things according to the counsel of his own will. But at least in the congregation to which he's preaching, we can assume, he says, that we've got some grasp upon that, that from the first moment of human history, even to the last, God's will shall be done. And then he moves from the lesser to the greater. Do you think that he reigns in providence and is king there, but not in grace? That he's given up the blood-bought land to be ruled by man, while common providence is left as a lonely province as God's only heritage? No, as surely as God's will is the axle of the universe, as certainly as God's will is the great heart of providence sending its pulsings through even the most distant limbs of human act, so in grace let us rest assured that God is king, willing to do as he pleases, having mercy on whom he will have mercy, calling whom he chooses to call, quickening whom he wills, and fulfilling, despite man's hardness of heart, despite man's willful rejection of Christ, his own purposes, decrees, without one of them, falling to the ground. So, analogy. Look at creation, look at providence, consider the sovereign will and purpose of God in them, and then will you deny that God is as freely determining, freely determining, freely determining his purpose with regard to salvation as he is in those other works. But secondly, he says, we believe that the difficulties which surround the opposite theory, that is that man is responsible for his salvation, are tremendous, so great in fact that we cannot bear to look them in the face. If there are difficulties with regard to the idea of a sovereign God in salvation, there are ten times more about the opposite. What if you make the purpose of God in the great plan of salvation entirely contingent? That's what happens when salvation is made to depend upon the human will. All of a sudden, you've put an if upon everything, says Spurgeon. Christ may die, but there's no certainty in salvation. There's no sure efficacy in that redemption. The sure mercy of David is no longer sure because there are ifs and buts and perhaps and maybes. How happy then, says Spurgeon, when we come back to the old-fashioned doctrines and cast our anchor where it can get its grip in the eternal purpose and counsel of God who works all things to the good pleasure of his will. 
So he's saying here that if you make man's will the critical factor rather than God's will the critical factor, then salvation is entirely a matter of if and maybe rather than yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Then if you make man the, the centre of salvation, then man is made to be the supreme being in the universe. If it be as God wills, then Jehovah sits as sovereign upon his throne of glory and all hosts obey him, and the world then is safe. If not God, then you put man there to say, I will or I will not. If I will it, I will enter heaven. If I will it, I will despise the grace of God. If I will it, I will conquer the Holy Spirit. For I am stronger than God, yes, stronger than omnipotence. If I will it, I will make the blood of Christ of no effect. For I am mightier than that blood, mightier than the blood of the Son of God himself. Though God make his purpose, yet will I laugh at his purpose. It shall be my purpose that shall make his purpose stand or make it full. And so, says Spurgeon, that is rank atheism. It is idolatry. It is putting man in the place of God. The third reason why it's not of him who wills or him of run, who runs, but of God that shows mercy, is that the known condition of man is a very strong argument against the supposition that salvation depends upon his own will. Simply put, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. He is a rebel against God. He has rejected his will. He is at enmity with God. He is so depraved, says Spurgeon, so set on mischief in the way of salvation, so obnoxious to his pride, so hateful to his lusts, that he cannot like it and will not like it unless he who ordained the plan shall change his nature and subdue his will. So the fallen nature of man in opposition to and rebellion against God demonstrates that salvation must be of God who shows mercy. His fourth argument comes closer to home. It is consistent with the universal experience of all God's people that salvation is of God's will. He uh, quotes some hymns or suggests at least some hymns in Wesley's hymn book which are stronger upon this point, he says, than I could ever venture to be. He puts prayers into the lips of the sinner in which God is even asked to force him to be saved by grace. Of course, says Spurgeon, I can take no objection to a term so strong, but it does go to prove this, that among all sections of Christians, whether Arminian or Calvinistic, whatever their doctrinal sentiments may be, their experimental sentiments, that is, their, their sense of experience, are the same. I do not think they would any of them, the Arminians, refuse to join in the verse, Oh yes, I do love Jesus before he first loved me. Or find fault with our hymn, Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Yes, we crown him, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And Spurgeon says, I'm staggered that men believe dogmas contrary to their own experience. I mean, you could, you could even argue from that, why would an Arminian pray to God that he would save sinners if it rests in the soul of a man to do that for himself? 
And now Spurgeon says, I've got the last great battering ram. If all the arguments from analogy and the difficulties of the opposite position, inferences from the feebleness of human nature and deductions from experience don't settle this question, let us go to the law and to the testimony, for if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And he says then, turn to your Bibles, use your Bibles, go to the first chapter and the third verse of the letter to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. A double word, says Spurgeon, according to the will of his will. Is that clear enough for you? Then go to the ninth verse. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he's purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him." Or the eleventh verse, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. As for redemption, Hebrews chapter 10, the ninth verse, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he might establish the second, by which will we are sanctified. Or the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 13. And you have to say at this point, maybe that man who read the Bible 34 times on his knees was in too much pain by the time he got to these uh, verses to actually recognize what was being said. Or James chapter 1 and verse 18. Or Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, the third verse. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Or one more passage, 6th chapter, 39th verse. The preservation, the perseverance, the resurrection, the eternal glory of God's people rests upon his will. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, Christ Christ in John chapter 17. So says Spurgeon, if all the other arguments don't work, according to scripture, there is not a single blessing in the new covenant which is not conferred upon us according to the will of God, and that as the vessel hangs upon the nail, so every blessing we receive hangs upon the absolute will and counsel of God who gives these mercies even as he gives the gifts of the Spirit according as he wills. So, Spurgeon's first main point in this sermon. Salvation hinges upon the will of God and not upon the will of man, and nothing can be allowed to undermine, deny, or move away that truth. But the second point, and remember the different phrasing, man's will does have its proper place in the matter of salvation because the scripture also says in Revelation 22, whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. Now, because this is a slightly different point, it is not equal to the first in the sense that we are not putting God's will and man's will side by side entirely in the matter of salvation, but recognizing the proper place and relation of each. 
according to this and many other texts of Scripture where man is addressed as a being having a will, it appears clear then that men are not saved by compulsion. And what you've got is a slightly different approach here because of the different relationship that Spurgeon is trying to bring in. We are not saved against our will, nor again, mark you, is the will taken away, for God does not come and convert the intelligent free agent into a machine. God does not make a man a slave, rather he frees him. God does not turn us into a robot. And he refers to Erskine, who, speaking of his own conversion, says he ran to Christ with full consent against his will, by which he meant it was against his old will, against his will as it was till Christ came. But when Christ came, then he came to Christ with full consent and was as willing to be saved. No, that's a cold word. As delighted, as pleased, as transported to receive Christ, as if grace had not constrained him. In other words, when God in his sovereign mercy makes us a new creature, then our wills previously rebelling against God, rejecting his truth and his person, are made willing, sweetly and blessedly yielding, because not they have been bound, but they have been freed from the bondage of sin. And so, and this is where the pastoral and the practical elements begin to, to come through, this gives the renewed soul a most blessed sign of grace, insomuch that if any man wills to be saved by Christ, if you've got any desire, if you want your sin forgiven through the blood of the Lord Jesus, if you want a holy life resting upon the atonement of Christ and in the power of the Spirit, that will that desire, that appetite, that wish to know God in Christ and all the blessed fruits of his salvation, that in itself is one of the most blessed signs of the mysterious working of the Spirit of God in his heart. Such a sign is it that if it be real willingness, willingness, I will venture to assert that that man is not far from the kingdom." We tie ourselves in knots when it comes to the matter of salvation. That's really the point that Spurgeon is making. We, we, we have all the offers, all the promises, all the drawings, all the encouragements of the gospel, and yet we're essentially asking, even if our souls eagerly and earnestly desire these things, can I really come? And Spurgeon says, if you've got any will to be saved, it must be that God has been at will in, at work in you already to will and to do for his good pleasure. So depend upon it. If you are willing, God is willing, because otherwise you would have no will. You would have had none of those holy and sweet constraints upon you, drawing you to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're anxious after Christ, O soul, he is more anxious after you. If you have only one spark of true desire after him, that spark is a spark from the fire of his love to you. He has drawn you, or else you would never have run after him. If you're saying, come to me, Jesus, it is because he has come to you, although as yet you do not know it. Let your willingness then to come to Christ be a hopeful sign and symptom. And that, again, should draw and comfort and, and sweeten the experience of some who are troubled about these things. And again, he speaks to the anxious ear. It appears that when you have a willingness to come to Christ, there is a special promise for you. 
He goes on, you know, my dear hearers, that we are not accustomed in this house of prayer to preach one side of truth, but we try, if we can, to preach it all. There are some brothers with small heads who, when they've heard a strong doctrinal sermon, grow into hyper-Calvinists, and then when we preach an inviting sermon to poor sinners, they cannot understand it and say it's a yea and nay gospel, a yes and a no. Believe me, says the preacher, it's not yea and nay, but yea and yea. We give our yea to all truth, and our nay we give to no doctrine of God. Can a sinner be saved when he wills to come to Christ? Yea. And if he does come, does he come because God brings him? Yea. We have no nays in our theology for any revealed truth. We don't shut the door on one word and open it to another. And so, says Spurgeon, this this appetite again that you may have. You're, you're believing in obedience to God's command. It's your duty to believe. This is what the, the hyper-Calvinist would damn as duty faith. But here is the command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This is the commandment, that you believe in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So it is your right and your duty to believe. But once you've got the willingness, then you have this special promise. Whosoever will, let him come. What an extraordinary invitation, says Spurgeon. And at this point, you might be saying, hang on, I'm I'm struggling with the logic a little bit. I'm not quite sure where he's going. But now he's, he's pleading with men. And there is a logic in this. He's saying if God is inviting you to come, if God has worked in your heart to give you this desire, why would you hold back? Why would you stay away? Why would you keep yourself at a distance? So if God is speaking to you from this this morning, from the scriptures, to you, if not to any other man in the chapel, he is saying to you, whosoever will, let him come. And you cannot say this doesn't mean you. When there's a general invitation, you may exempt yourself perhaps in one way or another, but not now. Are you willing? Do you have this appetite? Has God given you this desire? Then let that one come. You come. If you were dying of thirst and you were offered water, you would just put your lips down and drink. So, says Spurgeon, soul, do that now. Believe that Jesus Christ is able to save you now. Trust your soul in his hands now. No preparation is wanted. You don't need to have reached a certain point or stage. Whosoever will, let him come. Let him come at once and take the water of life freely. To take that water is simply to trust Christ, to repose on him, to take him to be your all in all. Yes, God is willing. And so it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. And in connection with that great and sovereign grace, whoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. I do think that whatever may be some of the uh, the shortcomings uh, of the sermon, whatever may be the, uh, the, the way in which Spurgeon perhaps changes his approach for those two different points. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain shift in, in feeling and in, uh, in dealing. Nevertheless, what you've got here is a wonderful example of what it is to hold these things together and to demonstrate them holding together, to show how they are united in these things. 
As Spurgeon elsewhere says, I do not need to reconcile human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They are friends. And what is then helpful in that change in feeling and dealing is how Spurgeon demonstrates that these are not on a par with one another. That's not what preaching the free offer of the gospel means. That's not what depending upon the sovereignty of God means, that somehow you're trying to hold these two things side by side as if they are equal in the matter. And this is where the, the, the pastoral and the practical genius of the man comes in, that he is setting forth as an absolute the will of God in salvation as first and preeminent, but also demonstrating and pastorally and sweetly how the will of man does have a part in this according to the sovereign purposes of a saving God. Well, I trust there's something of value for us in there, not just in terms of the polemics of the matter, the, the, the conviction that God is sovereign in salvation and that man is responsible in his dealings with God, but also how pastorally and practically we can work some of those things out in our own ministries and labours as God's people. Now, God willing, next time we'll be looking at a sermon entitled An Exhortation and a Salutation. It's Sermon 450 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. And next week, that means we're reading uh, Sermons 444 to 450. And I trust they'll continue to be a blessing to you. Thank you. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.